Hi there, and welcome to Be a Global Citizen, the podcast that explores the concept of global citizenship through the lens of value-creating education. My name is Scott Bauer, and I'm a SOCA researcher and educator. I hope you find the discussions, stories, and insights on this podcast to be valuable and inspiring as we strive to become global citizens who are committed to living a contributive life. Today on the podcast, we are doing something a little different. As part of a final assignment for my graduate course on equity and opportunity, I'm inviting three previous guests, Judson Tomlin, Reed Pierce, and Wayne Jones, to join me in reflecting on social class identity. Each of us will share individual reflections and then participate in a group dialogue. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. Um, so here I am in India, East India, reflecting on my experience with class um, based on our course on class. And um, I suppose just as a reflection before we get started, uh, I guess thinking about my own understanding of class before uh, the course, I would say I had a relatively high degree of class consciousness now, I would say that historically growing up, I did not. But I think as I, I developed politically into my, my late 20s and early 30s, um, I actually uh, would identify as a democratic socialist and became, as a result, uh, quite aware of class as a, as a, as a uh, construct, as, an, as, a, uh, as a topic where previously I didn't. So just as a, a little bit of background, I grew up in the South, in Arkansas. My father was a doctor, my grandfather was a doctor, so, and I grew up in a relatively mid-sized town. Uh, I would definitely say, you know, based on that town, it was like a town of 50,000 people, but we were definitely on the upper, you know, middle-class side of town. It was, um, however, a historically, uh, um, Historically, it was in a, the, the Arkansas River Delta area uh, that feeds into the Mississippi River Delta, uh, an area of historic slavery and systemic uh, poverty, I would say. Uh, so the town I grew up in is a town called Pine Bluff. Uh, it's about an hour south of Little Rock. Um, and in that town, you know, as I said, we were very well off, lived in a large house, and my dad was you know, a prominent doctor, and uh, by those standards, uh, I had a, you know, an up-middle-class lifestyle, able to go to private school and whatnot. Um, having said that, once I got out of that little bubble, I realized the limits of class, uh, whereas previously I thought, you know, probably I thought I was even upper class based on where I was, I realized how context-specific it is, because once, you know, I started going up to Little Rock and associating with people there, I realized I was... Um, looked down upon, which was interesting. It's just a town south, an hour south. But there, that being the, the capital and major city of Little Rock, there, was, um, there were people there that were significantly more wealthy or went to better private schools, etc. So that was, I guess, my first introduction that I wasn't necessarily upper class. And then I ended up going to a private boarding school similar to the one that we read about. It wasn't St. Paul's, but it was a school called Episcopal High School. And it was an elite school for sure. Um, but I think my parents, you know, probably, you know, the tuition was quite high. I'm not sure if they, uh, you know, had to take out loans to pay for it. But nonetheless, they, they deemed it worthwhile because the schools in my area were, were, were really poor quality, unfortunately. 
but once I got there, I think I realized that um, I think similar to that article that I I didn't know where I belonged because here I was at the school and I thought that I belonged to that class, but I was realizing that they were able to do activities or things or uh, they had experiences like international travel that I didn't have at that stage. Uh, I would, I think, unfortunately identify with that upper class for a while and had aspirations to, to be that and would go on to a liberal arts college uh, with the, the idea of, uh, I guess, identifying with that class. But I guess I never felt easy there and always felt out of something out of step. And um, I suppose going from private school to liberal arts school and again, these... I guess the distinctions of class became more and more apparent where job opportunities existed for these people that I never even heard of. Um, many of them would go on to work for, say, consultancies like McKinsey and, uh, or Wall Street and seemed that they were just natural extensions of their family. Whereas, you know, my parents kept pushing me to be a doctor, which is a, obviously a, um, a, you know, a fine profession, and, and, but it's still, you know, I guess probably deeply tied to their experience and to the upper middle class of, of their area. Um, whereas these other people clearly had like upper class um, or upper, upper middle class uh, um, careers ahead of them. Uh, long story short, I guess I had a political awakening in my mid-20s uh, when I was no longer in, living in that bubble. I had moved out to New Mexico and was kind of forging ahead on my own and and um, I guess at that stage kind of identified where I was. And I think that's where class becomes kind of a, an amorphous concept where I guess financially, I wasn't earning much money at this stage. I was, it was right around 2008, so the time of the global financial crisis. I had just ma- I graduated my master's, my first master's degree in uh, uh, Eastern philosophy and Sanskrit. And uh, there was, I had contemplated getting a PhD or going to law school, but uh, given the financial crisis, there was no jobs available. So I was working on my applications for that. And in the interim year, was working odd jobs where I, you know, I worked at Trader Joe's for a while. I worked at a Citibank call center, um, all sorts of odd jobs, which I guess really uh, made me more and more aware of uh, class and, and finances as a whole. Uh, But as I said earlier, it made me kind of question one's class in relationship to, say, uh, one's income, because I certainly was earning well, you know, at the poverty line, but I wouldn't necessarily identify with the people that I would, you know, that normally were earning that. I guess I was viewing it more as a temporary setback, but I guess class also somehow is independent of finances, yet obviously it's tied to finances, but I guess it's also somewhat, you know, what are the components of class I was reflecting on? Maybe education levels or experience? Um, because in that, that degree, I was still tied to, say, more of a upper middle class experience or aspiration, even though I was currently earning, in, say, the working class. So I've, I've, I've never really quite been able to identify where I stand in class now. Um, I, now that I live in India, you know, I probably earn the equivalent of like $35,000 $35, a year, 
which obviously would put me at the at or below the poverty line if I were in the U.S. But here in India, you know, I'm able to save money, and especially the fact that I live at a boarding school where my costs are taken care of, most of that money is just saved. So I don't think I'd have that ability in the U.S. for sure to save, you know, basically my whole income. Um, so again, I don't really know in terms of class where I am. Obviously, there's international class too. So clearly, being a, a white American male living in India, um, I would probably put myself in terms of, if, let's say if we look, define it, classes, you know, experience again or availability of opportunity, I'd have to put myself on the upper spectrum, even though in terms of finances, you know, there's definitely many, many Indians that earn more than I do in, say, finance or engineering or medicine. But still, I, you know, I don't want for anything. So I guess having taken this course, and I'm looking at the, the second reflection um, question for class six, why is it important to understand educational equity and opportunity? Well, I think for all the reasons I've kind of discussed just my own understanding of, of class and and I, I suppose when we, when, as educators, we have to realize that everybody has their own story, their own sense of belonging uh, in terms of class. Um, but I also see class as being um, a unifying factor for many. So even though we have our individual stories, there's many unifying uh, uh, features of class um, that kind of cross racial or religious lines or gender lines. So for me, class is probably more of a broader spectrum uh, than, say, race or ethnicity, which can sometimes put us into different buckets. Um, but I think with, with class, especially, I think I have a broader understanding of it. And I probably have more of a traditional Marxist view of, say, class. So I think our difficulty, especially as Americans, is that we don't really have class consciousness to begin with or an understanding of it, which is why socialism was always slow to to pick up in the U.S. versus, say, Europe, where there's a clear class structure. America, I think, is in class denial. Uh, even though there is a class system, they just don't call it as such. And there's also still this, this, this notion that classes is as fluid as one's merit or effort, which I think is, is, is largely untrue. And I, you know, I think there's this illusion that you can rise to the upper class through hard work and and uh, ability, but I think we we all know that that's usually the exception and not the rule. And I think if we look at say most of our our readings thus far, I think this underscores why equity and opportunity is so important within education. Is that it's just for that reason alone that it's not truly a meritocracy because those at the top have much more opportunities than those at the at the bottom. So. When I was reading that New York Times piece on Dasani, I, 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 I was really sad for her because here's, you know, trying to set her up for success. And because of her, her background, uh, I mean, she was almost set up to fail in a sense. Um, and there's just so many students like that that fall through the cracks because of their backgrounds. Uh, and I mean, there's, there's so many readings we did where even if scholarships are available at the university level, it's probably too late at that stage, and I remember the the doubly disadvantaged versus the the you know privileged poor, as he called it, uh, and just a few years difference in terms of interventions. Those privileged poor were able to thrive much more at universities. So you can imagine what it would be like if there was early childhood of an intervention across all classes, 
but squarely focused, say, at working in lower classes, I would expect there'd be higher results. Um, but obviously, it's important um, to understand that because I think, again, especially in the U.S. context, I think there's just an overall, I don't want to say it's ignorance, but I think almost a naivete where the people are unaware of class necessarily, uh, and which leads everybody to believe they are in the middle class. And so I mentioned earlier that I take more of a Marxist approach in terms of there's the capitalist class and the working class. And I think that's the easier way to, to look at it in terms of if, if you have to work for a living, you're, you're basically in the working class. Obviously, there's more privilege um, for certain people than others. But I, I think at the end of the day, if we start further refining it and getting too and too, you know, too bifurcated, no, not even bifurcated, but too divided, um, it just further divides people. Um, um, but I think, you know, largely, obviously, having an understanding of it is important as educators, just so we can be aware of of the unique challenges that everyone faces when coming into the classroom. And and then the second part of the question asks about what I've learned about class. I think I've kind of mentioned all that now, but as an identity, I think it's interesting that most Americans would identify proudly so as middle class, but that middle class could be really wide. I think, you know, one of the first class we had, most people identified as middle class, but they all had different stories. Um, so I think it's interesting to find out where people actually identify or what does class mean to them or have, have people actually adequately thought about it because middle class seems to be just like an instinctual response uh, as opposed to maybe a, a reflected response, understanding where one lies in position to others because I think class is, is really identifying where you fit in in a society in, in relationship to others. Um, and as a result, you know, I've learned quite a bit about that as identity, as social structure. Clearly, you know, I've always thought that, especially the public education system was meant to propagate the status quo and basically train workers uh, of the future. Uh, so it was more akin to jobs training than actual education, which should be the pursuit of learning for learning's sake and to develop skills to, that will lead to self-actualization and becoming a better human as opposed to a better cog in the system. That, that view hasn't changed. It probably has been reinforced, if anything, by reading uh, much of the reading, uh, like Boyles and Gintis and, and whatnot. Um, but I suppose at the same time, I've also realized that uh, I don't really see any solutions that are um, easily uh, obtained. Um, I mean, the only way I could think of it is, is, is a radical solution, but it's somewhat similar to, say, the Finnish model, where they basically have, but again, it's Finland, so it's hard to duplicate, but the culture where private schools don't really even exist, um, and most everybody goes to public schools, even the very wealthy, which would basically have the wealthy and the poorest going to school together, which I think is the only way to do it, to mix classes together and also ensure equity in all schools. And certainly in the U.S. model, there shouldn't be, say, funding of public schools via property taxes. That just seems to be perpetuating inequity. Um, but, yeah, these are some of my thoughts. I think I've rambled on long enough, but hopefully this is a start for the conversation. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. I'm excited to share a little bit of my kind of 
end of the course reflections on equity and opportunity with specific focus on class. I first wanted to do this this course because I never really thought too much of class or I thought of it in very overly simplistic terms that being like okay there there are you know people who are like rich people who are in the middle class and then people who are poor the the lower class and I you know conveniently said oh I'm I'm just in the middle class and and that's that's normal right I think so much of me um, in the environment growing up in Southern California um, was always this attempt to fit in, right? To be to be normal, um, because to be normal was to be safe, and I think that's an important dimension to also consider. That um, you know, within such a competitive society that the United States is, um, there's this need to or this pressure to conform. Um, and yet we also have these narratives, uh, like especially with the American dream, right? Or those who are like self-made millionaires to also be the exception. And you kind of have this paradox between, well, where do I fit in? Um, and what is available to me? And so again, growing, growing up, I never thought of my, my parents as being, um, you know, on the higher end of the middle class, um, both work work in the, you know, hospital setting, um, and and yeah, and I just felt like they they always provided. Um, there was never a lack of any kind of like material things, but we, you know we didn't go on big you know international trips. Uh, in fact, a lot of times we just went on camping trips because the the logic would be uh, put an initial investment down on camping equipment. And then you're just basically paying for the gas to get to a campsite, a small fee for the, the space that you'll be occupying, and then you're done. And so that was, you know, very much, uh, yeah, a common holiday thing with my family that um, I always enjoyed, you know, don't get me wrong. But the reasons for why we would go were more tied to um, income, right? Than, and, than anything else. Um, I mean, love of the outdoors, all of that is important too. Um, but yeah, so I kind of just, as I was thinking about what to share for this reflection, um, one, of the, one of the big aha moments for me came with kind of the lack of vocabulary that I had around class. One of the cases or examples of this was um, just how it's very common for people, uh, families in the middle class to schedule many, many things, many activities for their children. They would have their, their child go to a soccer practice from this time to this time, and then afterwards go to an after-school program from this time to this time, and then, you know, have a, a slumber party or go to a birthday party, and, and there's just all of these things that are just scheduled in to occupy the, the time. And um, and I always saw that as normal, and it wasn't until taking this course where they put a name to it as uh, concerted cultivation that it really dawned on me how um, not normal that is, right? I mean, in certain cases, yes, uh, but because I was so meshed within my environment, I didn't realize that's what was what was taking place. I mean, the the opposite of, of that concerted cultivation would be what is known as um, you know natural growth, 
um, kind of allowing children to make their own schedules, to leave them um, to decide what they wanted to do in the day. And um, yeah, and to also just kind of chart their own way uh, forward with like uh, in engaging with their fellow, um, you know, friends, <laughs> fellow friends, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, basically, I think there's there's something to be said about the contrast in uh, what a full schedule dictated by the parents looks like compared to what uh, a very open schedule is for a young person, um, and, and they decide that. So that was something that I, I really felt like, wow, um, my vocabulary is quite limited. And I think that also is, it speaks to a larger theme of, of the class where um, there's this sense of kind of like opportunity of charting new pathways forward and um, building our own understanding of class from a personal level and, and then seeing how that extends out to larger structures and systems of class that we are all tied to. So, you know, class is such a broad term and it makes me um, sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like, where do we even start? Uh, but in a similar vein, um, that class being very broad, it, it can be a lot. Um, identity is also very broad, and it can be a lot. And what I appreciated about uh, one of the first classes uh, that we had, um, there was this activity that we did called the identity map. And it, it, it asked us to, to see like the, the different stages of our identity being formed and what we kind of... Uh, gravitated towards in terms of like what were important pivotal moments in our formation of an identity and I know for me I I put it I, I started it at high school and kind of went from high school to college to post-college to where I'm at right now and you know I realized that high school was it was so important um, you know the influence from my parents the community that I found myself in living you know, growing up in Southern California, but it's, it's, it's not just the environment, but also these other kind of social identities that are tied, tacked on, um, one of them being racial and ethnic. I, I have, uh, you know, both kind of like Asian, uh, or, you know, like my Koreanness coming from my mom and then from my dad, um, who's, you know, Californian from, um, the United States um, identifies as white. Um, I always felt this kind of split between which side was I more um, kind of leaning towards, or yeah, what does that mean to be part of two different groups of like mixed race, and and that always kind of sat with me of like wow, what does that mean? But also about like athletics, that was a major part of my life. It got me thinking about. Um, you know, how I identified with um, other young people who were also playing soccer, who were also on the swim team. And, and I found that um, from high school and then going to college, these formative experiences of continuing with my athletics, um, really engaging as an intellectual, right, to do more academic studies um, and to engage with professors and my, my classmates, and big, big questions, um, as well as being a leader as well, kind of understanding that my involvement within a community is important and it provides opportunities for me to step outside of what is comfortable um, and what is known. All of you know these different identities 
begin to converge and then set me down a path, uh, you know, after college. And what I what I realized with, um, you know, after college is that, you know, I have so many of these kind of habits or these these viewpoints set. And and then I, you know, look to the outside world and that's how that's what I perceive. And I feel like for the next, you know, like decade or so um, after graduating, I I've, you know, done well to to understand and to navigate much of uh, what society has has, you know, in front of me, I guess, um, in terms of the opportunities, in terms of meeting with people, with, um, you know, staying safe in certain neighborhoods. Um, I spend a large chunk of my post-college life in South America. So the process of becoming more bilingual um, and then trilingual in terms of my professional career as a teacher, um, I think it was really important for me to also be exposed to what class looks like beyond just the United States. And, um, and what I've taken from this course is to understand that, you know, class is going to look very different um, based on the cultural setting and the historical setting as well. And I think that there's much, much more work to be done to really anchor oneself in their own class background so that they could appreciate the nuances, the complexities of other countries, right, of other cultures. And, um, and so, you know, it's really gotten me thinking about how I am actively grappling with my own class background and this process of sense-making around class uh, because I, I do think that it's much, much more than just, you know, perceived income levels that put you into a, one of three broad categories of, you know, upper, middle, and lower class. And, um, but, you know, each of these categories really matters um, for how we engage with um, our, our families, with our friends, with just other people in general. Um, I think so much of this is about perception as well. Um, but rather than allow others to just kind of immediately perceive you, again, starting it from your own personal background and, and kind of curating your own understanding of uh, where you came from, how you became and how you are still becoming, I think is also an important conversation to have around class because that suddenly puts more of the power in your hands. And, um, and, you know, this element of power is something that we also talked about a lot in class. I think knowing that, yes, we all belong to and inhabit the same oppressive system that wants us into these categories that kind of, um, you know, set us up, especially in how we are schooled to occupy certain um, levels, let's say, within the, the within class in the United States. But there's also a lot to be said about how, you know, we are still, we're, we're much more than just that. And I think, again, that speaks to this idea of identity. And one of, you know, my great interests, especially moving forward, is to, to build upon my identity as a global citizen and find ways in which this cultivation of uh, my own global identity is tied to my understanding of class. And I think, you know, it's very evident that I'm, I'm, I'm very, very privileged and fortunate that I've been able to engage with people from around the world, been able to travel to different countries. And 
and that's that's great it helps in um, understanding that we are all part of the same human race but i also think that global citizens or it could be, you know, anyone, right? Anyone who has this deep commitment to humanity and that, you know, one's class does not preclude anyone from becoming a global citizen. And and so, you know, that's why I think by kind of regaining one's sense of power, um, curating one's own story, using that story to connect with others, I think ultimately brings people together and helps them solidify their own identity as yeah, global citizens. And, um, and so, yeah, the ways in which my work or my interest in, um, you know, making this happen is through education for global citizenship. Uh, and I, I'm hopeful that, you know, by engaging others, supporting others in this, this active process of reflecting on class, uh, will really chart new pathways forward um, to, yeah, to build more harmonious societies um, hopefully, you know, also address the oppression that exists within much of society and uh, a sense of like kind of collective humanitarian competition that can substitute the very neoliberal and cutthroat uh, competition that we see happening uh, in society. So that, again, there's this greater sense of equity and opportunity that comes by mutually striving to achieve new goals and to bring bring out more of our potential so that it's not just simply set to a specific mundane task that is relegated to you by society, rather something that you yourself have um, come across and have engaged with and that it's not an end-all be-all. And I think, you know, having this open inquiry that continues for the rest of one's life ties into lifelong learning, something that I'm also very passionate about and really encourage my own students um, in the classroom to, to really think about and engage with. And, and so those are just some of the thoughts uh, in regards to what, what I've taken away from this class about class. <laughs> and uh, I'm very excited to hear a little bit more about what my, my classmates have to say about class. And um, yeah, we'll get into the conversation. Um, so when I reflect on um, this course, um, I think about how previously I haven't really thought about um, class explicitly, um, or I would think about it in very um, like monetary only um, sort of ways. So you know, lower income, middle income, higher income. Um, but I think after, um, just being more exposed to, um, commentary on class, um, reading different articles, like, um, looking at people's, um, personal narratives or like their lives through this lens of class, um, has really sort of broadened, like how I think about it. Um, I think one of the things that I think about most, um, is how class is, um, it's so, um, I think elusive in the sense that you, um, even if you 
progress up. Um, so like social mobility and economically and sort of those aspects that relate to the class, um, you can't truly like break away from it because, you know, as we've seen, there's like the ethical costs um, and um, you could be sort of breaking like broke away from your, um, you know, your person uh, or your individuality um, to make yourself more palatable um, to others as you try to navigate through spaces. And th- this could be, um, you know, academically or otherwise uh, or professionally. Um, and when I think about my own experience uh, with class, um, I think growing up, like, uh, I didn't really think about it much. Um, I guess I think I remember asking my mom and sort of like parents and like family, like, so like, like what class are we like, you know, um, and my mom just like, oh, you know, like we're middle class. And I think this kind of goes into this idea of that's a natural thing for people to sort of gravitate to um, because it's rather neutral. There's really, there's like less complexities to really think about. and identifying yourself in that way um and i think growing up like you know i was able to sort of get most things and um yeah my mom was like a first grade teacher so um you know she had like a very um you know kind of like modest uh income and uh, i grew up in like um like appalachia like you know small town you know west virginia there's like about yeah, 5,000 people or so, um, and, like, growing up, like, I was able to go to, like, the Catholic school that was, like, um, you know, in our town, and, um, like, K through six, and so, um, yeah, and then, and my, and my, uh, my dad, like, um, he didn't work, because he was, like, disabled, and, um, so we, I don't know, I felt, uh, I was able to get most things that I wanted, um, not everything, but um, most things that I, f- I feel like I didn't really want for a lot. Um, and I also felt a sense of um, like privilege um, coming up because I was able to go to the school that I went to. Um, and I think it was a really um, helpful uh, sort of part of my life in terms of like getting a really good, like solid foundation um, academically, um, that kind of set me up for the rest of my academic career. Um, and when I think about the sort of concerted cultivation versus natural growth, um, I think I got a little bit of both, um, like during the summers and things like that, like, uh, I would spend a lot of time with my cousins in North Carolina and we would sort of like entertain ourselves and do things, but, um, at the same time, like in the summers, like if there was, um, you know, something like a, a camp or some kind of like math class or something like that, that, um, that I could get into, um, then I would do that occasionally. So some of those things, like I, I can kind of like, um, kind of resonate with, with both sides of that. Um, at the same time, I feel like growing up more than like 
economic class. I felt like a sense of more social class. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up in a small town. Uh, West Virginia is like a very uh, white um, area. Um, there was like a black community and like a neighborhood and um, things like that. Um, but I definitely felt that like my family was um, sort of known as like, you know, educators, like uh, my grandmother was like, you know, worked in, um, you know, preschools and then uh, my mom, um, first grade teacher and and then my aunt, uh, my mom's sister um, was also a teacher. And so people like knew of my family in the community. And so um, I could tell from a very young age, like how differently that uh, my family was treated um, versus like other black families. Um, and so I was able to sort of benefit from that. Um, and I think growing up as well, um, because my family was so um, sort of rooted in education, um, there were so many things that I knew to do, um, sort of navigating uh, different spaces, whether it's like up on a college um, or interviewing or knowing how to write a personal statement or like knowing how to sort of carry myself right um, in these different spaces to signal to other people um, that uh, like my worth or my uh, like worthiness of like being in a space. Um, those sort of like skills um, that I feel like that are passed down. Um, Think about Leroux um, with like middle class families. I definitely felt like I had that. Um, growing up and uh, specifically from my older sister so um, my older sister is like about six years older than me um, and she um, sort of was going through like the sort of like you know selective like college application process um, uh, in high school and so uh, when I was coming up she was trying to tell me what to do and you know this is what you you should say or you know you should you know, um, write your personal statement this way or talk about your story this way or this is what they're looking for. And so, um, yeah, I definitely felt like I had um, like a strong um, sort of advantage uh, in that way. Um, and at the same time, I also feel like, uh, you know, when I got to college, like um, some of my friends, uh I remember that it was like an interviewing, uh, interviewing um, like workshop, and um, you're supposed to like you know go and um, you know introduce yourself and um, you just sort of have like a you know tell me about yourself kind of prepared, and uh, like one of my friends um, uh, who was also black, he um, sort of like came up to me and like off to the side was like, hey, you know you seem like you know what you're doing, like can you tell me like how I'm supposed to sort of be in the space or talk through things? And I think at that moment I was like, wow, like I've never really had to think about how to do it. It was, it was so ingrained. And, um, I think some of that, um, sort of concerted, concerted cultivation that I felt, um, growing up, like, like, for example, like whenever we meet someone, like, um, my mom would make it, um, a point that I could introduce myself and say, 
you know, my name is such and such, I go to this school, and, um, you know, whatever, and I feel like also with that, I felt a comfortability with um, authority um, and talking to adults, because it was such a, like, sort of a normal part of my everyday life growing up, um, which also makes me think of the... Um, the Anthony Jack piece, um, where he's talking about, you know, the privileged poor and like people, um, you know, how their experiences can like vary like wildly, um, after they get to school based off of their sort of prior experiences and what they've been exposed to. Um, so when I was reading that piece, I really felt like, um, you know, I thought about my upbringing and, and um, you know, it resonated with some of the, the points that he was making. So, yeah, I think overall, um, I think going through the different um, sort of readings in this course uh, made me think and reflect more deeply um, about my um, my own sort of like um, positionality and um, my experiences growing up. Um, more so with a more critical view, um, looking at looking at it through the lens of class. Hey y'all, I'm gonna try to record this. It's Judson here, um, sitting on the back porch. It's hot, sunny. So I'm gonna try to reflect on. Um, yeah, on this equity and opportunity class and context. I I don't know, I've just been struggling to to try to think of how to really talk through my takeaways from the class. Like I, you know, I have no problem synthesizing the readings. Um and you know, I've found myself making connections to the things that we're talking about in strategic leadership like <clears throat> I find it all coming together really nicely but when I think about this sort of final project of like connecting to myself my practice or to the future um it's it's like big I I I, I almost feel a little bit intimidated um and I don't necessarily know where to go and I still I thought I just needed to sleep on it but I still feel a little bit out of my depth at this point, but I'm going to try to talk through and we'll just see what emerges. Um, so I guess going back to the beginning of the course, I think the first thing that struck me about it, and I remember this from the first couple of, of sessions, was when we were asked to try to identify our connections to class and to try to think like what experiences did we have growing up that spoke to our class and uh, and, our, and to our identity, I suppose. Um, and I remember finding that really challenging. And I, you know, I feel slightly more aware and able to speak to those things now. And I also feel like maybe now I have a little bit more vocabulary to understand why I found that so challenging in the first couple weeks. I think most of my identities are from sort of dominant, um, yeah, dominant, dominant roles like, you know, white, 
heterosexual, cisgender man, um, generally speaking, like, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a upper middle class household, went to private schools. So I, I realize now that, that perhaps the reason why I struggled a little bit with it was because I was in this sort of privileged group growing up and, and, and one of the things that came out of me out for me from Leroux, for example, but also a number of the other readings is this idea that that the and I think Khan Khan talks about this quite extensively in, in, in that little bit that we read of, of his book, is that idea that when you're in that privileged position, especially in the US, you're not necessarily aware of of the privilege. And that part of society is really built and schools are really built around giving children the sense that they are accomplishing things on the back of their own hard work, their own initiative, their own talent. And what we found out from this class is that's just not true that there are societal precepts that that give advantages to certain individuals and certain classes and i was certainly a beneficiary of that and you know now at the end of the at the end of the time together i'm able to sort of reflect a little bit more and i guess see that it was tough for me to identify those things precisely because I was blind to them for so long. And, you know, that's not to say that I was, like, unaware that, that I had a had privilege. Like, I, there were plenty of opportunities growing up where I was, um, you know, interacting through school and through sports and through any number of, you know, other things like camps or running around with kids in the neighborhood where, where you know, it was obvious that there were um, there were people out there who didn't have the same opportunities and advantages I had but again it was not something that was like that I felt on a day to day basis I guess um, and <clears throat> you know I suppose that this has made me think a lot about my practice as a, as a teacher and, and sort of my growing ambitions as a leader um, particularly in my current context, which is, I would describe as like a class rich context, class rich in the sense that class, social class plays a, a big role in, um, in the society here in Singapore and more specifically in our, um, in our school itself. Um, and so I, I find myself wondering at the end of all this what what should I be doing to to sort of I don't know if raise awareness is probably the wrong way of putting this but you know I'm just thinking about like the observations from the Anion piece about what classrooms look like for working class kids as opposed to the elite class kids 
and I'm, I'm just thinking about the ways in which we design our learning opportunities to be geared towards that elite class. And I find myself wondering if maybe there is, you know, language was a big thing and vocabulary was a big thing that, that came up again and again. And is it like that we need to have the vocabulary and the language to be able to talk about these things that opens the door to being able to see and treat them? I don't know. I'm still wondering about this. I, I'm not sure if, I, if, I've, if I've got, like, some action steps in mind. I guess... Reflecting on the, the scope of the course, the, the other big thing that stands out to me um, and that I will <coughs> really remember um, and come back to are is the podcast Three Miles and the podcast, um, the Ezra Klein podcast at, in Meritoc- Meritocracy Every, Everybody Loses. Um, those, two, those two pieces were, were super powerful. Um, for me, just in terms of, of thinking about meritocracy as this, this sort of like mark of social class and, and also linking back to what I mentioned earlier about this idea of like individualism and success being the results of your individual efforts and talents and how much meritocracy sort of fits into that. And, and the Bulls and Gensis piece, I, I did not like initially the first week we read that but on the back of the meritocracy stuff, I actually found that second reading we did on Bulls and Gensis to be like really eye-opening and super interesting. And I did find myself thinking like, whoa, this really still applies, even though this was from back in the 70s. Like this, this really makes sense in our current context. This is still really relevant work. Um, and maybe that was something that I, I took away from the course overall is, is, is a sense of what the historical context is for the scholarship around um, social class. Uh, you know, that's true for the Freire piece as well, the pedagogy of the, the oppressed, which um, I had not read before. And I, I just found that like profoundly beautiful um, in terms of the way it's written, but also just in the depth of sort of the f- philosophical um, unpacking of, of, of those ideas around education as it relates to, to, um, to social class. So I, I really enjoyed those. I've now sort of wandered off cue here, and I don't necessarily remember where I was going. Oh, right, I was talking about meritocracy and how much I enjoyed that. Um, <clears throat> and maybe that's because I feel like it, it also links to, to my current context, which is, which is again, highly stratified, but very mer- meritocratic. Um, <clears throat> and maybe possibly to my own background. So, yeah, and I'm, now I'm coming back around to the original question of like, where to go from here <clears throat> and I don't know the answer I really don't know the answer I'm just I feel like I have more tools and more vocabulary 
for talking about social class, I feel like I have more awareness for seeing the way in which social class permeates society and influences the power dynamics in schools and in the education system. And maybe that's the first step. Maybe this is about raising awareness for me and about giving me the tools and the academic foundations to be able to respond when the opportunity arises. And maybe I don't need to force it. Maybe having this awareness and having this understanding and having this vocabulary is enough right now and that when the time is right, I will be able to deploy this and I will be able to make decisions that will, um, that will strengthen the, the, the oppressed and strengthen the opportunities of the working class or that will help Maybe dismantle is the wrong word, but but shine a light on the inequities that that are are built into an, a, a meritocratic system. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm going to settle. I think I think I'm going to come down on the 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 takeaway for me is that I now have the vocabulary, tools, and academic foundation to be ready when the opportunity presents itself and that I can step into action at that point. And until then, I, I don't need to force it. I just need to remain aware, keep my eyes open, and, um, and just be ready. So that's it. That's what I've got to say. Thanks, guys, for listening. Really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, and... I didn't mention the, the Bell Hooks piece, which I really liked for a number of reasons, but maybe that's okay. All right, more to come. Looking forward to catching up with you guys tomorrow. All right, later. All right. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for, for joining me. It's really exciting to you know, listen through all of the different reflections that we each had for our course on uh, equity and opportunity with a specific emphasis on class. And, you know, I wanted to try something different with this podcast and bring all of our voices together and to speak to this idea, this concept, right, this pervasive thing we call class uh, and how it really, you know, affects us in, in our personal lives, but also in the work that we do within education. Um, it's been such a very interesting space that has been created through this, this course where we can really look at it and try to kind of anchor it in, in ways that we haven't been able to before or has just not been very visible for us. And so we have made it much more apparent how important this is. And I, I would love to hear more of your thoughts and yeah, kind of um, pass it over to to anyone who'd like to kind of get us going um, with this 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 dialogue on class. Thanks, Scott. Um, I'll just jump in. Um, one thing, and I mean, Wayne mentioned this in his reflection, but it's something I've been grappling with is this concept that class is is really hard to define. 
I think Wayne used the term maybe elusive. I have been using the word in my written reflections around it being somewhat of a nebulous concept uh, in the sense that um, it's really hard to pin down what exactly we mean by class. And it's interesting, I think, you know, some of you all noted that majority of people, you know, identify as middle class, but that certainly can't be the case. And I think while we've been doing much of the reading, it seems that there's certainly gradations, even within the middle class, where some people would have, uh, you know, access to extra tutoring or extracurricular activities, the so-called like uh, concerted childhood, you know, um, uh, versus those that would be not have those opportunities. So um, I guess coming into the class, I had I had a pretty good understanding of what class was as a social structure, but I'm still wondering, you know, how do we define it? And I think, I guess it's context specific. And I don't think the US really has a high degree of class consciousness or understanding. And that may be part of the issue. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you about this feeling of like, how how do we approach class? How do we define it? How it, how it's really quite nebulous. And and I when I think about like this idea of, oh, middle class, right? I would say the same thing for my own self. Oh yeah, I come from a middle class background. But I think I, I never thought, how like what kind of weight is attached to a statement like that and also how it really matters what context I'm in when making that statement because it depends on like me saying that to someone who's like my neighbor will make loads of sense and and then if I go into my classroom um, you know and let's think maybe back when I was teaching in Brazil and I said yeah I come from a middle class background but and now I'm in a very different you know socioeconomic status you know it's like different cultural perception, right? This image of America, which, you know, in Brazil, there was this kind of like fetish of like, we want to be more American in the sense that, oh, your country is a place where things work. And over here in Brazil, everything's a mess. And so there's this kind of different blinders, I guess, if, you know, you think about like a horse with kind of like the narrowing of the vision that I felt like in, it's it's different for each culture, it's different for each person. Um, and I'm I'm curious to hear uh, if anyone, uh, maybe Wayne or, or Judson wants to to weigh in on this about kind of the, maybe the weight or the impact of class and like your positionality when speaking about it, like maybe was there an like aha moment that you experienced yourself doing the readings where you were like, wow, like, so this is what class means to me right now in this current moment. Yeah, I can jump in. Um, I just... Like uh, after hearing everyone's uh, personal reflections, it was apparent to me how much um, all of us didn't really think about class like in a sort of thorough way. Um, it seems like uh, everyone was just like, yeah, you know, I thought of class. Um, I know I've talked about it in my reflection. Like I thought of class as like more economic. So like lower income, middle or high. Um, and then really not realizing how class just sort of like permeates through everything in society and um, how people are treated, uh, people's trajectories, um, you know, access to resources, so many things. I feel like for me uh, in this class, um, on class, I think it sort of jumped out at me um, when I was going through like, um, like the different stages of our identities as we went through time. I think Scott, you mentioned this um, in class before, but um, and writing down, you know, what was your, uh, how did you think of yourself as like an individual? Um, and so how does that, 
you know, compare and contrast with like your class and like how has that changed? Like as you've gotten older um, and things like that. So I feel like uh, it's been the personal reflection for me uh, is like really made me think more uh, deeply about it. Um, yeah, just to build off of that, I um, one of the things that jumped out at me listening to to our reflections, and this sort of stems from what Wayne was saying, is this idea that our own understanding of class changed as we moved into different contexts. And Scott was just sort of speaking to this, moving to Brazil, and and Reed spoke to this in going to boarding school, and this idea that you your class is really context specific, um, and you. You know, that's I think maybe that also gets to the reason why so many people identify with being middle class, because you don't necessarily have a full understanding of your place in the social structure until you're put in contrast to somebody who is really working class or somebody who is really part of that elite class. Um, and, and Reed, I know that was an eye opener for you when you went from from sort of small town Arkansas to to that boarding school where you were like, oh, this is what, this is what the elite class looks like. Um, and I, Wayne, I think you, you spoke to that a little bit as well in some of your transitions between um, family and, um, and different school contexts um, and getting input from your sister as well. And like getting that, getting those sort of anchor points about what, what working class actually looks like and what, um, and what some of these uh, these more elite and privileged classes look like, and that for me was also one of the big takeaways from the readings as well. You know, that was that was Anyan for me, and that was Larue for me. Was like seeing in practice, like, oh, this is what family dynamics look like in the working class versus middle class, or oh, this is how a classroom of students and working class are treated versus the privileged class, and you. You don't know what you you don't know until you're exposed to it, and, and I think we've all experienced that to some extent. Yeah, that was that was really great. Thank you for for sharing that, Judson. I think um, finding ourselves in you know kind of almost like opposition to that difference and being able to have this spectrum of like okay, from from where I'm at, seeing another person who is coming at it from very different, you know like working class background or, or very, very rich, right, background um, helps us to kind of break out of this uh, almost like group think. I think it's much more comforting to just feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm just in the middle, right? I'm no different than the vast majority of people in the, in the States where the middle class is kind of the sweet spot in, in many regards. It's kind of been created and built up in this sense that like, that's, that's, you know, the, the place where you will be less, judged right that's that's you know less critical of kind of your background and how you got there that you got there on your own merit right that you because of your work because of where you came from right who your family is that that's just simply the way it is and the, the way it will continue to be uh, and then as soon as you start questioning that as soon as you start peeling back some of those layers then you can see how it gets really dicey and I think that's um, one of the really wonderful things about class is that yeah how it's it has to be constantly reevaluated because of how it just won't stay put because nothing is static in, in this world, especially when talking about people, the interactions. So I don't know, if, uh, Reed, would you like to share anything about kind of what's been shared like so far? I feel, I feel like- Yeah, definitely. I, I just want to pick up something Wayne said that um, I guess how he was looking at class 
before we took this course around maybe just economic lines, like around maybe someone's uh, income. And this is something I'm grappling with now as I try to define class. It's, it's obviously tied to income. It's tied to wealth, but there are other features of it as well. And that's what I'm kind of grappling with it. Obviously, access is a big thing, power, um, opportunity, uh, even just the approaches to home life. Um, and something I've been thinking about was like the, uh, I forget which reading it was, but basically looking at say how, how aligned a school life and home life were, was indicative of one's class. And if there was a, a great disalignment, um, or I mean, dissonance was a word you had used Scott at one point between say home life and school life. Um, that was, that was a key feature of say working class. So there was this greater dissonance between, between the two realms as opposed to say uh, upper middle class uh, having some you know, resonance between the two worlds, if you will. So I'm just kind of at this stage grappling with what are the key defining features? If obviously income is, is a feature, but what else might be there? I guess it's educational levels of parents, um, approaches to parenting. Uh, again, I, as I said, access, to, and by that I mean access to to um, tutoring, extracurricular activities, uh, even just access to, to understanding how the university system works. Because there are so many students that were ill-prepared for university that didn't even know how to write it, say a personal statement and all these sorts of things that we just take for granted perhaps. Um, so there's a lot of features of, of class that I hadn't necessarily considered. So that's what I'm still trying to, to, to grapple with and understand how, we, how do we define it. I want to just to to pop in for a second. I, I'm I was struck as you were speaking um, about the way in which some of our readings showed that that the education system, the structure of the education system, places higher value on sort of those those that middle class and um, and upper middle class uh, sort of uh, what's the word like um, structures and um, and value systems, I guess, and tends to like denigrate the the sort of working class value systems or to be somewhat removed from it. Um, and that was something I was thinking about it as you were talking is like the structure of academia. We saw this in the in the bell hooks piece as well, where she talked about navigating from Kentucky to to Stanford and the way in which everything in these elite institutions is geared towards people who have grown up a certain way and who are used to interacting with others in a certain way. So that there's almost this like societal engineering around, you know, which, which social classes are going to find it easiest and most find themselves most at home in these scenarios. And that starts even, even down in the sort of elementary, middle, and, and high school, I think, is one of my takeaways. Yeah, I mean, I would also say, like, looking at, um, like, LaRoe and sort of this, like, um, sort of longitudinal sort of view um, on these students uh, from our, like, point of view of, like, class, you know, a lot of the students sort of stayed, like, um, sort of in their social class, even as they sort of progressed on and um, and you can see the different advantages that some students had. Um, and I think one thing that I noticed throughout this uh, this course is like the impact of um, social class. And when I think about that, I also think about like 
the uh, Anthony Jack piece. So he's talking about the students and he talks about like the privileged poor. You know, the students that are the privileged poor versus the students that are doubly disadvantaged, economically, they're pretty similar if you looked at them on paper. Um, but it's what sets them apart is like this like social um, part and the things that they've been exposed to. And um, I think Judson, you just mentioned like these like norms or like these things that are very, I guess the dominant sort of culture of like the middle class, like they learn these things through these like different um, kind of doors to sort of uh, opportunity or um, things that they've been exposed to, like being comfortable going to office hours or, you know, talking with, uh, being comfortable talking with like authority and things like that. Um, even though economically they're not sort of in this like more advantaged spot, um, socially um, they've been able to get like this like access to knowledge, um, which I think is something that um, like also just like permeates through class. Yeah, one thing something that- both, uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. Well, I was just gonna comment about uh, one thing that like a term that Judson had mentioned about like the social engineering of, of all of this was really stood out to me. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. Because I think there is, you know, it's very deliberate and um, the ways in which these institutions operate, how those policies are cemented and how it creates uh, predicted outcomes, right? It's, it, they're, they're intending it to work in, in this way, right? Because it's kind of like a well-oiled machine at that point and how it's very difficult to make those changes. And and, and this idea of like the whole predictable or maybe unpredictable nature of like, where do these um, privileged poor doubly, um, doubly disadvantaged, right? Um, yeah. You know, particular groups that come from the Jack piece, um, is it predictable? And and in many ways at that level, I think he was speaking how like, yeah, there could be certain trends, but then when we read these like individual stories, like the New York Times piece with Dasani, you know, attending the Hershey school, it was not, it, it seemed as if everything was going in her favor and it should have been an easy predictive, you know, indicator that she would go on to school and be part of the privileged poor when that didn't happen. And then there's this sense of frustration within all of the people involved of like, why is that the case? What's really at play? But I think there's these larger forces. And I think in her case, it was the the family, right? The, what that meant to her, um, what that, what how important that was in terms of a different structure that maybe is not given the same weight as all these other structures that we're talking about right and i think grappling with you know historical um you know baggage and pain that um, led her to where she was and especially the dynamic with her mother really supporting her and telling her you this is your golden ticket and yet again it's something something with the social engineering just didn't work out. And so it just leaves all of us kind of puzzled. And, and again, speaks to the complexity of, of what we're trying to, to deal with in terms of like, what does equity mean within these structures? And then what are the ways in which we can, um, I don't know if it's necessarily make it more predictable, but do overhauls so that, yeah, th that well-oiled machine is not, you know, the same as it, it always used to be. Um, but those are like much larger conversations, of course. But I just thought that, yeah, this idea of like the social engineering part and the actual like structural components tied to real lived experiences and like generations of families that 
just makes it like, yeah, just much, much bigger than I had previously thought about. Something I just wanted to add in here um, is something that both Judson and, and Wayne were alluding to is this is in, this notion that the the dominant culture defines what the norm is. And I'm seeing that through the lens of, say, a colonial mindset where, um, let's be honest, in the U.S. context, it's white culture, white middle class culture that defines what the norm is. And any any culture that may have a different approach is, is therefore deemed uh deviant or inferior but i'm even looking at it on the international scale and i'm coming working within the international baccalaureate um, which is very much a western style of education and i'm even seeing that that has now defined what the the norm is for say middle class upper class parents say here in india that they're now looking towards western models of education uh, uh, and and styles of you know how they would um succeed in that system is very much defined by the dominant culture, which is is Western culture. And so even on an international scale, this idea that the dominant culture sets the norm is something that I'm 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 grappling with. And it's obviously tied very closely with colonialism. And I can think of uh, multiple historical examples uh, with say treatment of indigenous peoples. Like in the US, uh, they had boarding schools back in the 1800s where indigenous people would be taken from their communities uh, because they, you know, they were uh, speaking the language and, and, and not assimilating, in other words, into white culture. Uh, this same practice was actually carried on in Australia and it's still, uh, up until the 1960s, they had boarding schools where they would take Aboriginal students away from their families, prevent them from speaking their Aboriginal language, force them to adopt Western style address and and other things, but still to this day, uh, because in, it's interesting, the Leroux piece talked about the two styles of parenting. It's very much a normal and within norm within Aboriginal culture to have, say, more of a a laissez-faire approach to parenting, if you will, where student or, or children grow up. Uh, and I forget the term Leroux used, but it's not the concerted, but it's the uh, what is what was the term? Natural, the natural yeah. growth. Yeah, natural growth. Yeah, so very much that was the the preferred method in the the Aboriginal communities, where you know children would grow up and everybody you know it wasn't like just the parents were looking after the kids; the whole community was. But at the same time, it was very much a an experiential process where they grew up and experienced the world and and were educated by the world around them. Uh, you know, within the current context, though, in Australia, that's deemed to be. You know, allowing for the creation of feral children, if you will, or a hands-off parenting. So uh, interestingly enough, the social services, the rate in which they take children from um, homes amongst Aboriginal communities is the highest, it's like over 90% of all children that are taken by social services in Australia, 90% are Aboriginal. And it's tied to, to this this concept here that they're, they're deviating from the dominant culture. So that's something that I, you know, I guess was kind of a wake up call for me, understanding how we define our norm based on these almost colonial notions. I was just going to ask you, do you do you see parallels to Dasani uh, in that in that story at all? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I mean, um, I mean, she didn't meet up. I mean, first of all, I didn't feel like there was the necessary levels of support needed for her to succeed in that environment. They just kind of plucked her from from the streets literally and put her into this elite schooling without necessarily the social emotional 
support. But at the same time, there was a clear dissonance between her culture and the expectation that she assimilate into this this other culture. And I and, and success was tied to to one's ability to assimilate. Right. And and sort of speaking to your point about how this was done in Aboriginal cultures as well, it's that idea that by removing, by like saying, deciding we need to take you away from this, we're also stating sort of implicitly that your your culture and your family and your values are less less than in yeah. some ways, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I just had a quick question for Scott and maybe Scott, actually Scott and Reed both spoke to this a little bit, but Scott, in your capacity as a Soka researcher, does, does, Akita or do you guys talk about class at all in, in terms of some of the philosophical underpinnings of, of, of the work you've done in this education you've had in that context? Hmm. That's a good question. I think, hmm. I, I believe that in terms of like using explicitly like class and some of the, the different terms that we've um, learned over this course, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that to be the case, um, but I think it's more of like the, the deeper roots of education and like the kind of understanding of where that student's coming from, but like it's more of that orientation, I guess. Um, but I don't think it necessarily gets into a lot of the conversations that that we've been having about, you know, grappling with, yeah, like the the, the dominant narrative. I think it, it's very aspirational in, in, in a certain sense of like where it's hoping to guide the individual to like connect with, with others around them, kind of like this notion that you're not going at it alone, but like tapping into your own, um, you know, inner potential, we would say, um, having that uh, in essence, like ability to create value uh, no matter how dire the, uh, the, the circumstances are, um, that affects change in the environment around you and then and vice versa. And so it kind of has this like back and forth dynamic, but um, how that then ripples out or like plays into um, larger efforts of like, yeah, this is kind of defining you as your class identity in this moment. Um, I, I can't think off the top of my head a specific you know, it's okay. I just put you on the spot there. I was just, it was something that popped to mind as, as I heard um, you and Reed kind of going back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, Wayne, I have a question for you, if if that's okay. I'm, I've just, I was thinking about this as we go along, but Wayne, you don't, you don't have kids at the moment, right? No. I'm, I'm just wondering, like thinking about your own experience, because you talked a lot about it in your own personal experience and how it's kind of shaped where you are and how you've moved through this course. Thinking forward to the future, if you were to have kids, how does what we've done here affect the way you think you would you would parent with regard to class? And obviously there's intersectionalities there as well, but I was just wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, um, I thought about that a lot. Uh, when I was uh, only reading through like Leroux uh, and seeing like the benefits and the, I guess, costs or maybe drawbacks of like concerted cultivation versus natural growth. Um, because yeah, I mean, obviously concerted cultivation, there's a lot of uh, like exposure, like the kids that were um, sort of under that umbrella got 
but there's also some drawbacks as well. And I talked about it in my like personal reporting, uh, how like my experience I felt was like a combination of that, um, sort of like in reflection. And so I, I think like, you know, if I you know had children, um, I think that people similar to how they lean in toward this idea of like I'm middle class, right? They don't want to sort of think about that or think critically about it or um, not apt to do it. But I think in a similar way, like if people have resources, like they automatically lean into the concerted cultivation and there's drawbacks to that. Right. Um, so I feel like if having children like, in the future, like because I like took this class and like let, read LaRoe, that's something that would be top of mind, like you know, what is the experience like for my child? Like, you know, what are they getting out of this? Like, is it too much activity? Is it too little? Um, and kind of like doing that, which I don't think a lot of those families that were in middle class were really doing that. It was just like, I have money, I have resources. I know like, this is good for my child, like quotations good. And so they just did everything. Um, and so I think for me, I would be a lot more thoughtful uh, about it. I love the I love the questions that Judson is throwing out there. Um, thank you so much. Very deep, profound questions indeed. And 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 so you know we are coming up on time in this really fruitful and amazing dialogue that we've been having. But I wanted to get us to kind of do some final thoughts, final words. Um, we'll just kind of go around. We'll start with Judson since uh, you know love to hear you, you know your thoughts. We can go with Judson and then to um, read. Wayne, and then I'll, I'll close things out, but maybe just kind of a, a few, a few thoughts about where you're at right now in terms of your understanding about class, what your hopes are, you know, this course is ending, right? But our thoughts will continue on and we'll, you know, apply them uh, in our, our lived lives and all that. So yeah, please, uh, if you could share um, maybe 30 seconds up to a minute of uh, where you're at right now with this, this concept. Sure. I, I think we've sort of touched on it, uh, and I've definitely written about this in my reflections as well, but this idea that class is infinitely more complex than I first realized when when we started this. Um, and I know listening to, uh, to Reed speak, I, I know he had already some grounding in, in, in um, an understanding of class that I didn't have. And so I, I'm interested to hear his final reflections coming at it from a, from a place that was a little bit more uh, developed, I guess, in terms of awareness than I had. So it was a real eye opener for me. And it's obviously made me think a lot about uh, my identity as a parent now, and how class will, will, will influence the decisions that I make for my kids. Um, living internationally, I also think about what the implications are for my kids being American as part of their identity and Dutch as part of their identity and living abroad and sort of dealing with how class changes depending on context, which is something we talked about. I guess my lingering question, and this is something I'm really hoping Scott would speak to because I think we, we kind of ran out of time for discussion, but I am really interested in this idea of understanding how does global citizenship fit in to, to our understanding of class and in some ways act as a counterpoint to um, the dangers or, or negatives or downsides of class. Um, so I'm really interested in sort of 
hearing your thoughts about that. And, you know, maybe there's scope for us to unpack this a little bit more in a, at another time, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Thanks. Reed, would you like to go next? Oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, I was, I was waiting. <laughs> um, yeah. So look, I mean, I did have a, a higher, you know, I would just call it class consciousness. I think is the the appropriate term. Uh, just an awareness of class based on my lived experience, but also my politics. Um, being a democratic socialist, I think you know class is like the big thing. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's interesting. This is a relatively short course. But it's given me a lot to think about uh, in terms of my future uh, practice as an educator. And I'm about to start a new role um, as the director of admissions uh, at, a, I would say, a very elite school in India. And I'm already predisposed to thinking that I won't, I'll just do this contract and then leave if I can't somehow open up more scholarships because I don't want to be, I, I, I can't see myself working within this system that perpetuates this class uh, imbalance. And um, my, my goal is to try to have more scholarships, which is one reason I really like United World College, which is, there, you know, you see so many people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and classes being able to attend an elite school, which they never would have been able to on their own. So as I leave UWC and go to an, an elite boarding school, um, if I can't somehow increase the the number of lower class students that can attend I'll probably you know that will be you know the end of that uh, but I have already interestingly just last week met somebody who runs a school in South India that's designed specifically for really really poor students here in India and I'm going to start volunteering with them and seeing what what capacity could be there for me maybe to start you know working there potentially in the long term. So I already have an exit, even though I'm starting into a new role. But uh, having said that, if I am able to increase scholarships and there is that ability, then I'd be happy to stay. But I, I just feel really uneasy working within an elite curriculum such as the IB when I know that there's so many students that would benefit from the program, but will never have access to, to a curriculum such as the IB just based on class. So this is, you know, it's interesting, as I said, it's just, it was a short course. But it's really given me so much to think about uh, in terms of my current practice and future. Thank you. Thank you, Reed. Wayne? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think this class like has really just uh, I think broadened my sort of horizons on like what I think about um, like the different variables that I think about when I think about class, not just you know, monetary. Um, and I think um, for me, like as someone who uh, you know, wants to be like a, a higher education, like administrator, and I have like a background in um, like doing institutional research, but like from like a quantitative side. Um, yeah, I like, I'm like kind of driven by sort of like supporting students. And I think this material and sort of like reading through these different aspects of class and how it like can impact like an individual and like a, like a student. Um, I think it makes me think about, you know, how can we, or how can like, higher education, like as an entity be more um, comprehensive in terms of like the resources and how they, um, how they support students. Um, because, you know, just because, you know, you're, you've made it to a certain space, you know, doesn't mean that like, 
you know, all your problems are solved um, or you're getting all the resources that you need just by getting there. So um, yeah, I think it's just sort of just generally just broadened, um, you know, how I think about individuals and um, the context that they come from. Thank you so much, Wayne. And I'll, I'll share a little bit uh, as well in terms of my final reflections and hopefully, you know, speak to Judson's question about, about global citizenship since, you know, after all, this podcast does have that in the name. So we'll, we'll do a brief little bit at the end. Um, one of the things that kind of I'm, I'm left thinking about, because I, I think so much of it has already been shared by the three of you, um, in terms of like kind of wanting to continue the the conversation, the reflection, um, and kind of understanding that this is not something to be just solved in, in one class, one six-week class, how could it, um, but more of a, a lifetime and a kind of constant engagement, uh, grappling with, and kind of critical consciousness as well. Um, but, you know, I, I'm thinking about my 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 upbringing uh, a lot more. Um, that, that mapping was really helpful, um, but it also was like very kind of just myself. I think my, like my journey, I know that my journey was not possible without the help of so many others. And I think about my mom, for example, um, she really got me thinking about class at a very young age because she would tell me about her hardships uh, growing up very, very impoverished in rural, you know, coastal area in Korea. And, and there was always this sense that like she had started from such, you know, basically the bottom rung, you know, and then had managed to get to middle class. And there's this kind of understanding that, well, if you start off in that middle class, then I don't think she's, you know, saying like, oh, you got to get to upper class, right? Or, you know, like the high class, but it's like, but what can you make of that? And and that has always been the question um, and something that I think I've really pushed myself to get out of my comfort zone to raise more and more questions. Um, something about, you know, the privilege of going abroad is that you face so many things that are just kind of beyond what you've previously imagined with um, growing up in one, you know, very safe environment. Um, and, and so it's led me uh, to this, you know, journey uh, that I think um, really understands that, yeah, we are truly interconnected. We are, we are grappling with very similar questions, but it's about that consciousness that uh, I think Reed's been talking a lot about, class consciousness, kind of like activating, uh, awakening of uh, that, that part where we're really trying to understand society from a new lens. Um, and I'm, you know, very hopeful that, you know, this idea of like global citizen, what does it mean to be a global citizen in this context is deeply rooted um, in, in those roots of mine, while at the same time pushing to uh, expand. And that's the thing, uh, one, one thing about this class, like social identity, it's, it's an identity, right? And there's so many layers to that, that um, we, we just, we go through with our lives and we kind of go from one thing to the next and we start family and and so it's so, so quickly to like lose track of um our own process of tying everything back together uh, and and so i think that's the process that we're all engaged in and i think that's also this understanding of kind of weaving our narrative but knowing that that's not in you know in a vacuum and that we can kind of we have the capacity uh to go beyond the local and to connect it to something much bigger and, and I think that's going to be more and more necessary as, you know, those are the tools to fight and address um, oppression and also to really um, reach out and extend a helping hand to those in need, but also to receive it yourself. 
and to um, just be more empathetic human beings. I think that's, you know, in my sense, like what global citizenship really is about the purpose. Um, but it's exciting to hear everyone's reflections and that it was a very meaningful class and, and that, you know, we have these wonderful like dialogue buddies, uh, you know, all, all four of us just to continue that um, and to share updates and questions and all of that and more. So thank you so much, Judson, Reed and Wayne for, for being engaged in this dialogue. It was very, very exciting to hear everything that you've, um, you know, kind of thought about and shared out. So really appreciate all of you. Thank you.